Father, your word is something that amazes us. That you could speak your thoughts. That they could be put into print. That we could read them and understand precisely what you have for us. What is in your mind. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given to us your spirit. That we might have life. That we might be able to know how to live in a way that pleases you. Lord, we thank you for the good things that you give to us. May we ever be mindful of your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the ability to worship you this morning. We thank you and praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Before I begin the message, I just want everyone to know that my uh, wife is resting very comfortably. She's breathing fine, blood pressure normal. Thank you all uh, for your uh, prayers. And as always, before I speak, uh, even when I was uh, deployed to some very remote locations uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, I would get a text uh, that would say, Preach the Word. And that's what, uh, that's what we uh, desire to do. So, as many of you know, I spent 20 years uh, as a United States Air Force chaplain. And my role was to advise and to assist commanders in the discharge of their responsibility to see to it that the military members' First Amendment rights Uh, were met as guaranteed by the the Constitution. So as such, and this may come as a surprise, perhaps you've never even thought of this before, but as such, the government pays pastors and religious leaders to serve in the uh, military. And I know that's a strange notion for some of you. One immediately hears the cry, separation of church and state. That's not constitutional. It's wrong. It's it's it's. It's unconstitutional, in fact. Let me give you a few facts just to clarify that. Number one, second only, got any army, old army infantry guys in here? Yay, we got, we got, I see that hand back there. Second only to the United States infantry, the oldest corps is the Chaplain Corps, established by George Washington himself and predates the foundation of our nation. As to constitutionality, the Chaplain Corps existed prior to the Constitution being written, and in fact, it was prayed over by a chaplain. (laughs) So whatever all else it means, the Chaplain Corps is included in the Constitution. Now, There's nothing that we can do about those who desire to rewrite history. But what we can do about uh, what they say is to resist it, to reject it. The fact is, Christianity has been from the inception of our nation at the uh, forefront in the community life of the public square. However, in our day, as we all know, there are serious threats Uh, that are designed to stop it. In fact, there's a wholesale effort to push religion 
out of the public square. Perhaps you're aware that one of the major candidates for the presidency uh, implied that Christians, at least Christians who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, are wholly unsuitable. In fact, I'll quote, not someone who this country is supposed to be about. Some were upset. However, I'm not. I'm not remotely surprised, and, and you should not uh, be surprised either. It points to a larger problem in our society that we began to get a feel for uh, a number of years ago when people in high places began to refer to the First Amendment. Maybe you haven't thought about the First Amendment very much. You often, if you do, would think of that in terms of the press corps. And the uh, wisdom of the founders in putting those two things together is just simply astounding. The, it was a, a stroke of, of uh, brilliance there. But anyway, they started referring to the First Amendment as the freedom of worship. Instead of what it actually says, the freedom of religion. Now, for the untrained ear, that may sound like a, a distinction without a difference. But let me tell you, there's a huge difference because what they mean by that is whatever you do privately as a matter of worship, that's wonderful. Go forth and conquer. Worship all day long if you want to. We don't care. But worship is not part of the public square. So you begin to understand some of the language, whereas religion is a part of the public square. I mean, as indicated in our stained glass window, or perhaps on many churches there would be a cross at the top. But Exhibit A is most certainly military chaplains. If someone, such as myself, who is a person who believes that Jesus Christ is exclusively the way to salvation and the Bible is true in every word, in every phrase, and it is inerrant, it's something that I hold to, if that is something that's included in the public square, I mean, that's an amazing thing, is it not? Because there are... I don't know how many believe like I do, but there are many, many in the military who do, and they're being paid by the government, precisely because the First Amendment guarantees citizens freedom of religion. So then why don't state, local, uh, and or uh, even uh, smaller areas of government pay civilian pastors? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the military is the only voluntary institution which, when you join, you give an oath, the oath of office. And you understand that in giving that oath that you may well, it may well cost you life, limb, and it will certainly cost you birthdays and anniversaries and holidays and other events like that. Why? Because the military controls your time, your space, and your place. That is, they tell you where to go, when to go, and what to do. And sometimes that includes some very nasty circumstances. You know, if somebody, you're in a job, somebody tells you to do that, you can say, hey, I'm not going, I quit. Well, you can't do that with the military. And so, 
because of the Constitution, I'm weaving a, 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 an argument here that will become clear momentarily. Because the Constitution is such as it is, that the government, when they send you someplace, that does not thereby mean that you no longer have your constitutional rights. It goes with you. And that puts a burden on the government. And so the government, in order to alleviate that burden, then they bring on chaplains. Whether you're in uh, Atakadam or Balad or Kandahar or Fort Hood, Rhode Island or Lackland Air Force Base, for that matter, doesn't make any difference. When you are commanded in the military, unless it's unethical or immoral, you do what you are told. Now, I know this sounds strange to the civilian ear, but listen, it should not sound strange to the Christian ear. It should not remotely sound strange to the ear of the believer in Jesus Christ. It should not make your head tilt one iota. Why? All through Scripture. I mean, and I could just say, you know, in Philippians, in Philemon, in Ephesians, in Timothy, we, and even here in our text today, we see military terms and metaphors. In fact, in Hebrews 2.10, I love this in the King James Version, I love the translation. It says this, Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, A captain's work, after he has arranged for the march, is next to give the word of command. Essentially, go, he says, or stay, do this, or do that, or be still. And what is the soldier's business? It's exactly the same as our business as believers is, is to obey. We, we don't, because we don't see the church as an institution like we look at the military, sometimes we misunderstand that we are in fact under command. The Lord Jesus Christ commands our soul and is the captain of our soul. In the fight, he's always there. Spurgeon went on to say this, You shall never climb so high that you will not find the footprint of the crucified there. Nor shall you be called to descend even into the depths of the sea, but you shall find that he has been there too, for he leads us always as the captain of our salvation." So turn with me as we look at what it really means to be under command in 1 John chapter 2. And we'll be looking uh, primarily at verses 3 through 6. So in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, we read this. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever stays or whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
So as Christians, we are, in fact, under command. The question is, are we commanded by self or are we commanded by our Savior? And so this morning, from a a process perspective, we're going to look at this text and we're going to examine what it's like to be under the command of Jesus Christ in our thoughts and our actions. So first, keeping his commands give us assurance that we know him. And second, to know him means that his love will reach maturity in our lives. And finally, that maturity in our lives is going to work itself out in the way we live our lives in such that we walk as Jesus walked. So first, keeping his commandments. That gives us assurance that we know him. Uh, This word here for keep is is a wonderful word. And what it means is we presently keep his commands. Doesn't mean that uh, that it's okay not to keep them in the future. It's okay not to keep in the past. But what it means is that uh, every day, in every way, at all times, we are presently, right now, keeping his commands. In fact, all of you in here are keeping at least one of his commands. And that is to... Uh, forsake not yourselves gathering together. You're here as it relates to the command of uh, God. And what he says about that is it's very interesting the way he phrases this. And he says that we can know that we know. We can know that we know him. Now, one might take that as, as simply another way of saying we can certainly know. Uh, There's a little more to that, and I want to be perfectly clear here. Right at the very uh, beginning is that John is not talking about salvation. Once you trust Christ as your Savior, you are eternally saved, period, full stop, end of sentence. You didn't make it happen. You can't make it unhappen. In other words, Paul is... Uh, in in Ephesians and Romans and, and Galatians elsewhere is agreeing with John that salvation is not by works. It's by faith. We've covered this a number of, of times here. And we know that John here is addressing believers. I mean, uh, just uh, three verses, a few verses before he calls the people he's writing to my little children, a, a close term of in. So what he's talking about is is uh, not eternal destiny, but rather this is an important thing to understand where you locate yourself, where you locate yourself on the spectrum of assurance. That is the assurance of your salvation so that you can know that you know him. He could have simply said you can know him. And if you keep his commandments, that means you know him. But that's not what he says. If you look at the text, he says so that you can know that you know him. Now, why would he say it that way? I think the answer is actually quite simple, because as with people, we all look on the external. We all look to the outside so that we look in our own lives the same way we look in the lives of others, where we say, this, uh, do I see any evidence of salvation here? Put another way, 
your confidence in your salvation is determined largely by your own observations in your own life. However, your life is not determined by your observations. Your life is determined, your eternal life is determined by what Christ did on the cross, not what you did yesterday or the day before or tomorrow. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with your belief. Your life is in Christ. You were eternally saved the instant that you believed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't charge the Holy Spirit to come or go. The Holy Spirit does what? He goes where He pleases. He comes to you when you believe. And so, but we still, we may ask, you know, have I seen any change in my thought, uh, my thought life, my patterns of behaviors, my heart, the way I think about things. And when we see a failure here, and truthfully, it's not just in ourselves when we see it in someone else. What that does is it results in a doubt in us about a, a lack of assurance and, and perhaps even in a, another person. But properly understood, that's not a lack of salvation. No, you can know that you know. So properly understood, this is about sanctification. It's not about salvation. But we can know some things. And here, by keeping this command, so what is it that we can know? We can know that we know Him. So this word uh, in the original, gnosko, is a word that you've probably heard before. It's one of the more familiar ones. And in the original, this, in this text, it's talking about a close, intimate relationship between two people. So it means to... To learn to know someone through direct personal experience. And, that, and it implies also a continuity of that, of that relationship. So that by obeying his commands, that brings us to know Jesus directly, personally, and continually. So there's, there's no contradiction here. I want you to note the language. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now that, you may say, okay, you're going to look at this and balance these, these two things out. And it is somewhat complicated language. So the explanation is actually somewhat complicated as well, but I'll keep it as clear as possible. So if, if I were to translate this differently, I would say it this way. He who is saying, I have come to know him, and is not keeping his commandments is a liar. So what's John saying here? John is using one of our old warrants, which of course we probably borrowed from him. And that is, actions speak louder than words. Here you have a person, and the emphasis in the text is that the person is saying, saying, saying. And it's a, it's a participle. The person is saying, they're continually saying this. But the second word, keeping, is also a participle. They're continually not keeping. So you've got someone who's saying and not keeping. And so the emphasis is on the individual's character. It's talking about the individual's character and not the content of the command. In other words, it's all talk, no action. 
So John is looking at this and he's talking in this particular line about someone who does not believe. And he's writing to believers about this person. So just look back at a a few verses and it becomes a little more clear. My little children, I am writing these things so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So certainly not to obey his command is a sin, but that doesn't make him a liar. He's talking about two different things here. One is he's talking about the person who is claiming Christ, but has no personal relationship with him. The other one he's talking about the person who claims Christ, but sins. And that's us. That's all of us. In fact, he goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. The liar is the one who says we have no sin. So if John wanted to describe the activity and not the person, he could have simply used an adverb. Done. While not keeping. In short, John is talking about someone who's claiming to know God, but his character and lifestyle demonstrate clearly that they do not. So, fire hose. And I know that. And I get that. But why did I pursue it so far? I'll tell you why. It's to, for us to ensure that we understand that John is not talking here about the security of the believer. He's not. He's talking about the believer's internal experiential knowledge of assurance. He's not talking about the Mosaic Law. He's not talking about the commands of the Old Testament. And he makes that very clear. He's talking about how we are to love one another in the family of God. And he offers to them the title of a song that we have. Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. That's what he's offering here. If they've trusted Christ as Savior then you can rest in the assurance of that salvation. But secondly, to know Him means that His love reaches maturity in our lives. Let me ask you a question. Why are you here? Or I suppose I could ask, why are you here? I could even ask it another way. Why are you here? And your answer to those questions actually says something about you and your relationship to Jesus Christ and your level of knowing God. Okay, so you have come here because of the commandment of God. Amen. Amen. That gives you assurance that you know Him. and He is well pleased with us for being here, as I've already mentioned. Scripture tells us not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. God expects and He is pleased that you are here. But does verse 5, does that reveal something else? Something more? I, I believe that it does. Whoever keeps His Word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
This word perfected, uh, it's a wonderful word. It comes to us in uh, English as telos. Perhaps you've heard that if you've ever done any uh, apologetics, you've heard the word uh, uh, teleology. And that's the study of the purpose of things. So Aristotle talked about this and he says this. He's talking about final purposes, right? So he says the purpose of an oak tree is uh, to, uh, or I should say, he started with the acorn. I was ending with the acorn because it's a bit of a circle. Uh, To the purpose of an acorn is to become fully grown into an oak tree that creates other acorns, right? So that's that's its purpose. So the purpose of a fork, you know, is to get food to your mouth. According to the Westminster Confession or Catechism, the, uh, the end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You can find these bits and pieces throughout theology and across uh, denominations and all over the place. The word here, and it's what's for uh, us to understand clearly, is it doesn't mean perfect in the English sense doesn't have any notion of the way we will often view perfection. That's not what it's talking about. It has more of the idea of maturity or coming to a place where you truly are fulfilling the purpose that you were designed for. So it's in this particular case, it's that the individual has come to a place and matured to a place where God's love is flowing through him or her and unimpeded to to others. So a child goes to Sunday school uh, because their parents say so. Some of you had to bring your kids to Sunday school this morning and maybe they didn't want to go, right? Or maybe they wanted to go, but they wanted to go because we've got some cool puppets. Or maybe they wanted to go because the teacher promised some candy. Or maybe they wanted to go because they just like to be around other kids. I don't know. Here's the thing, they're not, those aren't bad reasons, but they are childish reasons. They are the reasoning of a, a, a child, but we are not children. And so as we mature in Christ, His love in us is evidences in itself in a different way. Where we don't come, you see, because we're told to be here. We don't come because of a command We come because of, and I felt, I I, I love it when uh, when I can become emotionally involved in in some things, like that, the song that we sang, uh, you know, who uh, is is he worthy? You know, so there's this emotional involvement, but it's more than that. There's a spiritual involvement that says, I want to be here. I want to be in this place. I want to spontaneously pray. I want to sing just because there's a song in my heart. You see, those aren't based on commands. That's like loving your child because you're told to. No, no, no. Or loving your spouse because you're commanded to do so in the Bible. That's not the case. You do it because it's something is within you that wants to do it. And that's this second place. That's the second part of the process. You want to be here not simply because you're obedient to the captain of your salvation, but because you are in love with him. You've passed the commandments. You want to please him. 
And when God's love has matured in us, we no longer look at His commands as something that we do out of duty. We look at His commands as simply wanting to follow His desires. And in fact, we can become close enough where we follow His commands even when we don't know what they are. Simply because we are so close and connected to His heart and we understand the spirit of the law and not simply the word of the law. We know the heart of the Father. So finally, love's maturity in our lives allow us to walk through life as Jesus walked. If you're a medical person, you've heard this word before in some form or another. It's peripateo. And it implies that those who know Jesus, who know that they know Jesus, whose love, the love of God has matured in them, they're going to walk as as he walked. And one thing that's immediately uh, clear to us about this uh, walk is that to walk the walk, we have to know him personally and intimately and his love it has to have been matured or is maturing in us. But what does it mean to walk in the same way? I mean, obviously, I don't think that we should go out and get sandals. And I don't think that we should go out and, and stroll from place to place, uh, you know, where he walked, literally. And, or I don't think it means that, that we should necessarily... Uh, become, you know, rabbis and go out there and gather a little group of people to ourselves and, and do that. I mean, because it's, okay, so what it means is, all right, live the way the way he lived. I, I find that equally as challenging. I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't know that uh, I want to be an itinerant preacher. I, I, I don't think that's what it means. So what does it mean when he says walk in the same way in which Jesus walked? Well, in the context, it goes back to what John had written earlier in his gospel, where he says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And again, and even in this book, to draw a a closer and, and tighter Uh, connection here he says in verse 7 beloved i am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning loving god and loving your neighbor has more to do with your heart than it does with a list of do's or or don't It has to do with God's love maturing in you and in me and so that that love is an overflow of our hearts and that we don't do things that don't displease Him, not because we're afraid of displeasing Him, but because we're so close to Him that we simply don't do them. We just go forward in life in a way that's pleasing to Him. When we look at the life of Christ and we see that in all ways that he was intent on doing the will of the Father. In fact, the final act that he did in his earthly life was to give his life as a sacrifice 
for us. And in that manner, I think in a sacrificial manner, we are to love God with all our hearts and our souls and our minds, essentially with all our ourselves. When I was thinking about this, this walk and realizing the impossibility of how to walk, I realized that we can't even walk the way other men and women have walked. So we have to generalize this a little bit, but in, in studying that, I, I came across this story that was absolutely remarkable to me, and uh, at first I didn't believe it. So I had to look it up. I actually had to look up the, uh, the citation of the Victoria Cross itself. But during World War II, the, uh, the British were caught somewhat flat-footed. And uh, they had no idea uh, that they would be uh, so far behind so quickly. And, and many of their aircraft were not ready for war. And one of those aircraft was the... Wellington medium bomber. The thing was made out of aluminum and fabric. A uh, couple of engines on it, you know. And so off they they go and uh, and, and do their thing, and then and then come back. But you can imagine this fabric, even though it was uh, kind of fire. There's no such thing as fireproof, right? So it was fire retardant or or resistant a little bit. But anyway, they they were coming back on the 7th of July, 1941, from a, a raid. And the Wellington, who was co-piloted, the, the plane was co-piloted by uh, Sergeant Ward, was attacked uh, by an enemy aircraft, and, and it blew a hole, several holes in the wing, and one of those shells went through the fuel tank on the, uh, on the wing, on the co-pilot side. And there was an immediate fire. The, the wing was uh, in flames and, and they were in danger of losing the wing. And so the pilot said, hey, we need to, we need to get out of the, of the aircraft. But they wanted to fly it as long as they could so they could get as close to England as they possibly, as they possibly could. And so let's try to put it out first. And so there's this little... There's a little hole in the top of these old airplanes, you know, because the only way you could know where you were at right back in that day was to look at the stars. So they had a, a, a little spot where they could go up and look out there. So they, they popped that lid and uh, they threw water at it and they, they, they emptied their canteens at it, right? But, you know, when you're going a couple hundred miles an hour, it's, even though it's only six feet away, uh, that's, that's not going to work. And so they were fixing the bailout when, when Sergeant Ward, he, he notices two things. One is that the seat that he was uh, in, in, the, in the back where the navigator was sitting for padding had, was one of the engine cowlings. And he thought, maybe I could smother the flames. And the second thing he saw were the holes that the... Uh, shells had made in the wing. And he said, I can, I can use those as footholds and I can crawl out there and I can put this fire out. And so he and the navigator, they poked a hole through the side of the airplane by the wing and he climbs out and he, he's, he's using these holes that the shell made and then he's also 
making holes with his feet and his hands so that he can hang on. And he takes his cowling and he puts it over the fire and uh, extinguishes the fire. And then he then he uh, works his way he works his way back in, and uh, and so instead of bailing out, they made a, a landing uh, there in England. And later he was summoned to 10 Downing Street, where Winston Churchill himself awarded him the Victoria Cross. Now we can we can admire, we can respect we can stand in awe at the kind of courage that it takes to do something like that. But no one's done that before or since. Right? You can't do that. You can't walk where He walked. You can't walk where Jesus walked. In the same way, though, there is a way in which we can walk. And that's the way that we can walk with certain attitudes and certain principles. We can walk in such a way as to reflect the relationship that Jesus Christ had with the Father. We can walk in such a way where we give of ourselves in self-sacrifice. We can walk in such a way that we connect with one another. And that we don't hold everybody at arm's distance because we don't want to get hurt. We can allow His love to flow through us in ways where we actually do walk in His steps. The steps that He has ordained for us to walk in before the foundation of the world. He has scheduled it out. If we're walking, if we're maturing if we are knowing, then we can be living in such a way that is pleasing to God at all times. Father, we pray that you would grant us the kind of assurance, the kind of, of um, sense of stability where we're not having to worry about, do you, do you love me today? Have I been good enough? Will you love me tomorrow if I fail? But we can rest fully in the knowledge that you who know us best love us most and will never leave, will never forsake. Father, I simply pray that with that kind of assurance, we can be free to allow Your love to flow through us to others and help them in their need. And then, Father, through all of that, that we would be able to walk in a way that's pleasing to You. We thank You. We praise You. We commit ourselves to You through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.